Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Thank you all for joining us today once again. Today we are welcoming back a previous guest, Dr. Renee Garcia. She previously was on our podcast episode on depression as a guest psychiatrist. However, I personally know Dr. Garcia and she has such an inspirational story about her journey into medicine that I wanted her to share it with you all. Luckily, she agreed to talk about her life experiences and how she became the great psychiatrist that she is today. But before we start, I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Renee Garcia. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in biochemistry from California State University, Los Angeles. She continued her medical journey at Loma Linda University School of Medicine, where she earned her medical degree, and then went on to general adult psychiatry residency at University of Southern California's Keck School of Medicine. During residency, she developed professional interest in reproductive psychiatry, repetitive traumatic brain injury, and decision-making capacity assessments in the general hospital setting. In residency, she was also involved in the Graduate Medical Education Committee and Residency Selection Committee. She then went on to Stanford University to complete a psychosomatic medicine fellowship. She subsequently transitioned to Stanford faculty as an assistant clinical professor and then became the director of the Psychiatric Consultation Liaison Service at Hope Memorial Hospital Presbyterian in Newport Beach, California. Thank you once again for being back, Dr. Renee, and congratulations on your baby son. Thank you. I appreciate being here again. Um, I'm more than happy to kind of share my journey through medicine and, and kind of what my day is like as a psychiatrist. I am, like you said, specialty trained psychiatrist in what was once called psychosomatic medicine. It's a fairly new subspecialty of psychiatry that really was, wasn't recognized until 2005. And as probably in the last few years was actually renamed to consultation and liaison psychiatry. And and it really is um, a psychiatrist who works in the general hospital setting. Um, So I don't do, I'm not on an inpatient psychiatric unit or in a state hospital. I'm right there in the thick of it in an acute care hospital. So I see patients in the emergency room, on medical and surgical floors, in the ICU. And because, you know, psychiatric patients get ill, medically, just like the normal population, um, they get hospitalized. And so I help other medical disciplines provide care for psychiatric patients. Great. So how would you describe a typical day is like for you when you go into work, if you have a typical day? So I always say, you know, in psychiatry, every day is different, for sure. But the, the outline of my day typically is the same. Um, I Because my role is to manage both the emergency room and the medical floor, um, we are a consult-based service. So I reach out and I rely on my colleagues, either in the emergency room or on the floor, to reach out to me and notify me of consult requests and to give me a little bit of a, a clinical insight as to what they might feel would be my target clinically when I go in and evaluate a patient. So my day typically starts in the emergency room. Um, I have what we call morning rounds. I sit down with our nurse um, for any patient who has a behavioral health or psychiatric patient. 
and our social worker for the emergency department. And we essentially huddle on every single behavioral health patient in our emergency room. Um, We go over legal status, if they are on a 5150, if they are on a 24-hour medical hold awaiting a 5150 evaluation. Um, Unfortunately, many of our 5150 patients who are destined for an inpatient psychiatric unit, um, unfortunately, are boarding waiting for a bed um, in our emergency room. So I make sure that everyone there who's waiting for a bed has their medication started, who is, you know, if they're in a manic or a psychotic state that we are initiating treatment while they are waiting for that inpatient bed in the emergency room. Um, Many times if we don't initiate treatment, it can lead to workplace violence, you know, what we call in our hospital and many hospitals code grays or code greens, which is a combative patient. Because they're in crisis, many times it leads to behavioral dysregulation. So I'm there to make sure everyone is on the right track in terms of treatment, um, or at least that the nurses have medications available to keep the situation safe. Um, So that's where I start my day. Um, And then depending on patients, if they need uh, acute evaluations, I will see them. And that usually bridges me until about lunchtime or a little bit after. Um, and that allows many of my hospital hospitalist colleagues, um, internists, surgeons, intensivists, to round for on their patients in the morning. And um, consults to the different medical floors comes in usually by then. Um, and then I go to the floor and I see those consults. Um, and the consults, in terms of reason for consult, can vary widely because of the aging population. I see a lot of um, patients who have diagnoses of dementia. Um, and have significant behavioral disturbances associated with that. Individuals, patients who come in who have dementia, they have some type of medical issue and they end up, you know, significantly delirious. They can be quite hyperactive and disruptive and sometimes violent. And so they will call me to help manage those patients behaviorally. Um, Like you went in my introduction, I see a lot of decision-making capacity evaluations. So for people who have some type of diminished ability to understand what's happening cognitively or where the physician, their primary physician is unclear as to whether or not they fully understand the medical situation and are making appropriate medical decisions as a result. And so I would go in and assess whether or not someone truly understands what's going on and if they're making decisions based off of sound logic, um, or if we need to involve family in in kind of a shared decision making or bring in a surrogate decision maker. And then, of course, there's all the primary psychiatric pieces. So I see many patients who have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety as a a diagnosis that they have prior to coming into the hospital. Um, But then there's another population oftentimes that I see of individuals who are hospitalized um, who maybe didn't have any prior psychiatric history, but because of what they have going on in the hospital could be experiencing some situational um, changes emotionally that could be like um, some depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, insomnia. Some people even have changes in, in just their conduct to where they, they are just acting so out of character that it's concerning for family or their doctors. But that, I mean, it, it could be a spattering of that throughout my afternoon. And that typically kind of would bring me to the end of my day is just seeing consults. Um, one of the reasons why I love my specialty so much is because I get to directly interface with physicians of other disciplines. So I talk to my internist and my ICU doctors, and it, it really kind of keeps me feeling very close to medicine 
which was one of the the things that I struggled with when I was deciding what specialty I wanted to go into. Can you just for our listeners describe what a 5150 is? Sure. So the 5150 is California's version of uh, involuntary commitment order. Um, So many states have their own way of approaching involuntary commitment. So when a psychiatric patient is presenting to any type of mental health provider, so it can be in an emergency room, which is where I see my patients, but there are many peace officers in the community that also can initiate a 5150. Um, But the, the code 5150 is the welfare and institution actual code for our law in California about how we approach involuntary psychiatric commitment. And a 5150 has three criteria in which a patient, if they meet that criteria, can be placed on an involuntary psychiatric hold for a 72-hour duration. Um, The three criteria are danger to self, um, where someone is either acutely suicidal, they're having suicidal thoughts, um, they feel unsafe. Um, Danger to others, where an individual is oftentimes violent or aggressive outwardly towards others. Usually that's driven by some type of paranoid or persecutory delusion, um, sometimes via auditory hallucinations that at times can be command in nature, where they're telling um, the psychiatric patient to do something. And, it, and sometimes it's, you know, as benign as waving, sometimes it's, you know, go stab them. So we have to do a safety assessment as to what might be driving that danger to others criteria. And then there's one other criteria that is honestly a bit of a a catch-all in a way. And it, it is a general description of something called a grave disability. And what that means is a person is deemed to be gravely disabled if they are so impaired that they're unable to provide food, clothing, and shelter for themselves, okay, by virtue of a mental illness. That last piece is very, very important because there are many people who are can actually meet that criteria of being gravely disabled in such that they're unable to provide food, clothing, and shelter for themselves, but it's not because of a a, a psychiatric disorder. And those things are specifically carved out from 5150 law. Um, So if someone is, let's say, gravely disabled, they're bed bound, they're nonverbal, they're unable to dress themselves and feed themselves because they've had a massive cerebral vascular accident, that is not someone who could be put on a 5150. It has to be as a result of a psychiatric disorder. So those are the three criteria in which I oftentimes, when I meet with someone, those are the criteria that I assess to make sure if they meet one of those or sometimes more, um, then I can initiate a 5150 to ensure that they, as well as the community, stay safe until they're more stabilized. Thank you for explaining that just because you and I understand what 5150 is, but I'm sure a lot of people don't. Now, let's get to know you. So if you can tell us a little bit about like your upbringing, your background, who Renee was before she became a doctor. So I am the only child of two Mexican-American parents. My family was spread out about all over California. So I spent a lot of time in Southern California where I was raised um, in the Los Angeles kind of Pasadena-ish area. My dad's family, the Garcia side, was down here in Southern California, and my mom's family was in the Bay Area, and that was the Castro side. I am an only child, um, but I grew up surrounded by family and loved ones and lots and lots and lots of cousins. I grew up with two working parents. We did struggle financially growing up, 
We did not live in the best of areas. We rented an apartment, but my family worked hard. And one of the things that both my mom and dad felt strongly that they wanted to instill in me from the time that they decided to have me was the importance of education. Um, Both my mom and dad, they met in college in the Bay Area, and then they got married and moved back down to Southern California. So when they decided to have me, that was one of the things that they agreed upon that they were really going to instill and make it a high priority for me as I grew. And so even though they financially struggled, one of their biggest priorities was to put me into a private school. And it was a small private school and it was definitely a sacrifice for them to put me through that. But I really do feel that it made a a significant help for me because I was in a small classroom. I got a lot of attention. And then my, my parents also, when we got home, were very much involved in making sure that I understood my homework, that I was doing things to the best of my ability, and I wasn't getting distracted with other things um, until my homework was done. But I also inherently was the type of kid that loved school. Um, I always kind of considered myself a bookworm. And, you know, because of my parents making that sacrifice to send me to private school, we had to drive a really long distance. So my days, unfortunately, I wasn't the kid who got to play on the street with all the other kids after school. It would mean my mom getting me up at 6.15. We would get in the car to drive through traffic because my small little private school is next to my mom's work. Um, And so then I would stay there because my mom was, you know, worked full time. She wouldn't pick me up from school. So I'd get dropped off around seven before she had to go to work. And I'd get picked up around six after she got out of work. We'd make the trek home, homework, you know, dinner, bath time and back to bed. So my, my life very much circulated around school. It was the the main activity that I had, even if it was in an after school program. Um, and I loved it. Uh, I went on. Um, it was in high school that maybe things became a little bit more challenging with trying to manage friends and expectations and extracurricular activities that weren't academic. So social activities, doing things it was hard. A a lot of my friends around me very much got into partying, very much got into, you know, going out with friends and dating. And and that became their social focus and their world kind of transitioned away from being focused on school when you're in elementary school and even middle school. But by high school, even though I love school, I still very stayed focused on school. I did get a bit distracted. And I, I got into going out with friends and going to different parties. And I did get pregnant my senior year. had a long-term boyfriend that I met my sophomore year. um, And I found out I was pregnant in December, my senior year. And of course, as a young girl, I feel like my dreams weren't going to be possible. You know, was I still going to be able to be successful? Um, Was this going to be the end of my future in terms of being able to do whatever I wanted to do career-wise. Now, for many years, I mean, I loved school and I knew from the time I was actually young that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I specifically wanted to be a pediatrician. My pediatrician was the best person in the world. I still remember her name to this day, Dr. Danielle Barut. She was amazing. Every time I seen her, she engaged with me. She was so smart and funny and charismatic that she was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a pediatrician. I wanted to be 
someone to connect with other children like myself. So going through school all these years, I still wanted to be a doctor. I still wanted to be a pediatrician. And that actually never really wavered from, I want to say maybe second or third grade. You know, when I was little, I wanted to be a vet and then an artist. And then it landed on pediatrician and it never changed. It kind of stood that way. So I'm, I'm unique in that regard. And <laughs> in that, you know, a lot of kids, they change and they want to do this and that. And for me, from like second or third grade on, it was be a pediatrician. And so when I did find out that I was pregnant my senior year, I thought it wasn't going to be possible. How could one make it through medical school and residency with a, a young child? And then an added overlay on top of that is, you know, I, I may have had this high school boyfriend for a few years, but, you know, we were already at that point. It was clear to me that it wasn't going to be long term um, and that we were already growing apart. But, you know, my family being who they are, um, we had many discussions and they said, it doesn't have to change. We're here to support you. We love you. We, you tell us what you need from us and we'll be there to help. Um, and they really were um, my mom, my father, my even my extended family, my aunts and uncles and cousins, everyone rallied so that me and my son, Mark, had the support we needed to where I could still achieve my goals. So I felt very fortunate that I had a family who was willing to make those sacrifices so that I could achieve a dream that I had and which I learned later is they all shared in that dream for me because I am the only physician in my family. Um, and so that was one thing that I felt my family all felt it was a shared achievement. Um, and I remember when I graduated from medical school, my whole family, if you can imagine, Zoma, I know you know how large a Mexican family can get, showed up on the lawn of Loma Linda's quad. <laughs> it was a, a very, very powerful and moving day for me as it was for them. Like I'm already getting choked up right now just thinking about how powerful that day was. So much love and sacrifice from myself and my family went into it that it was just a great day. To kind of, I don't and I apologize if I'm jumping around a little bit. I feel like it doesn't necessarily fit a kind of streamlined. There's so many things kind of co-occurring in, in parallel. But my son and my, my my son's father and myself, we did um, terminate our relationship shortly after I had him. A little before his first birthday, things between us came to an end. He unfortunately, like so many of people we grew up with, really lost himself uh, going out and partying and he lost himself into drug use. And that was just something that I couldn't be a part of. It was not a road that I was okay going down. I didn't like what it did to him, how it changed us and how it changed who he was as a father for our son. We did end up parting ways and it was not on good terms, unfortunately. And so for my son, over the next, you know, many years, his father was in and out and then eventually just pretty much out. And so by the time that I started medical school, his father was no longer there. And I really very much navigated the world as a single parent, even though I did have an amazing, robust support system with my family. It still was me as his only parent. So I was a single mom all through undergrad at Cal State. I got really good at being able to cram all my classes into two days a week so that I could be available and home with him on the other days, studying in between naps and when he would go to preschool. And then when he transitioned on to uh, elementary school, 
his elementary school and my medical school lined up perfectly. So he was in first grade and I was in first year medical school. Mm-hmm. So we used to, I have very, very precious memories sitting next to him at our um, kitchen table. He's doing his homework and I'm doing my anatomy homework. And he, to this day, will still remind me of those anatomy dissection videos that I would watch. And he would be so like amazed by them. He'd be sitting there, what's that? What's that? And he would be looking at it. And to this day, he still remembers some of the anatomical features, even though he's very much not a, a medicine-focused person. But that kind of led me through all the way through medical school. Um, I really feel like my family was a big piece. You know, I think what I was choosing to do was so outside of the norm of what so many of my friends were doing. Many of them didn't know what direction they were going to go in. Many of the the families of my friends didn't have that same focus on education that my household did. Many of them didn't even think about whether or not they were going to apply for college. Many of their parents were not college educated and were more blue collar and, you know, felt that that was completely respectable as it is. Um, But you know, for kids in that area, many of them maybe had would have wished or strived to have been a professional in some way, maybe a dentist or um, a veterinarian or any number of different professionals, but didn't have that focus. I remember my senior year thinking, like, as I was applying for colleges, pregnant, talking about it with my friends and them being like, oh, you know, I haven't decided if I'm going to apply and it's already application season, you know, and trying to encourage them, like, just go in as, you know, even if you change your major, you know, it doesn't matter. And they didn't even understand just that terminology. What do you mean? Declaring a major, anything like that, because they didn't get that, that foundation at home. One of my, my closest girlfriends, I remember her even to this day, she, we just talked about it not too long ago, said that, the only reason she applied to college was because her boyfriend did. Other than that, she says that she probably never would have applied. And now, fast forward 20 plus years, she's now a PhD clinical psychologist. Oh, wow. So for someone who maybe didn't have any direction when they went in, just by happen chance, you know, made it because of someone in her life encouraged her and she went, you know, out on a leap and kind of went for it. And now she's a professional and she has an amazing career. So I did have that friend kind of come with me through um, education, but many of my other friends didn't. Yeah. Um, And many of them I lost contact with because, you know, I was just so focused on completing my medical education. Some of them unfortunately got really into the whole drug epidemic that surrounds us now. I feel very fortunate to be where I am. What did your parents do? Because you said they went to college. My mother, she got her AA um, and she was trained to be an x-ray technician. And she's worked for LA County. Um, In fact, she's retiring soon. She's worked for LA County for 35 years. She's climbed the ladder. My mom has an amazing work ethic, which I really consider myself to have modeled after. Um, She went in as an x-ray tech, climbed up. She got trained in mammography and now she's the supervisor of the entire radiology department. Oh. And my father, who is now deceased, um, was by training. So my, my grandfather owned a mechanics garage. So my dad, just growing up, his summers were 
working um, for his father in their garage. So he was a mechanic. But then when he went to, to college, he trained in theology. Oh. Um, he in, always intended to be a religion teacher in some type of school. But my father, like many others, um, struggled with addiction. My father was an alcoholic for many years. He unfortunately went through a lot of adverse childhood events growing up, um, which I don't think as a child growing up and while he was alive, did I recognize those things? It wasn't until fast forward 20 years that I'm a psychiatrist and in reflection could see how much those traumatic events had on him and probably were a big driver for his substance use. But he never really, unfortunately, went on to being a teacher. So he didn't use his degree in that way. But he always was an amazing mechanic. So he that was how he contributed to our livelihood. Um, but because of his substance use, it was not always as consistent as perhaps my mom would have hoped for. But my mom was my core. Um, she worked hard. She got up every day. She set the example of what hard work can do and that it does pay off. And yeah, so that was how my parents, so they met in college. And then that was what they did for the majority of my life. She's, I'm so happy my mom's about to retire. I'm ready and excited for the second phase. I'm glad you have your mom because it sounds like she's your core. Very much so. You know, it really, I feel like it takes, I feel, you know, with children, it says it takes a village to raise a child. But I really feel like, especially for minority students that are first generation, we need that village. It really takes a village to make it as well. So um, we usually stress a lot about asking for help. It's okay. This You're not expected to go through this alone because just like how you shared on graduation, yes, that's what my graduation ceremony looked like where my family and family friends and neighbors, they all went because it was a family effort. Like I never felt I did it by myself. You know, they somehow all contributed along the way. So that way I wouldn't give up or and I would make it. So having that support is really important. You know, that's one thing that you bring up, Zuma, is that asking for help. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy at first. You know, it is really hard. And uh, I, I always felt like I was inconveniencing other people. But lots of encouragement. Let us know. We want to be there. We want to be there. And they really showed me that they did. And it sounds like oh, everyone did for you. And I agree. I, I very much feel that I'm here with the help and support of many, many others. Yeah. it's it's almost like the success is not just yours. It's shared within your community and your friends, right? Very much so. Yeah. Um, Kind of a little bit of a tangent, but you know, when I got married in 2019 and I just couldn't take my husband's last name professionally because I feel like I owe it to my Garcia family that I am their doctor. I am the family doctor that I had to keep Garcia professionally. So very much so, I feel like this was uh, an achievement that we all take ownership and participated in. Yeah, exactly. When, when you were, you know, you, you did touch base on some of these things, but when you were deciding to become a doctor, um, what, was, what would you say was the one thing that most made you question yourself? And I'm sure you probably questioned yourself many times along the way, like how we all do. <laughs> But what would you say was your main, your major struggle? So, you know, I think the apparent one obviously was being a single mom. But because I had such an amazing support, I feel like the biggest thing that made me question was actually when I was in college. 
I'm not going to name what agency it was, but there are different, you know, agencies that partner with colleges that are there to help mentor and help work with college students to get into health professionals, um, health professional schools. The person I met with, you know, I at this point was three years into undergrad um, in my biochemistry degree. And it was my one-on-one because it was like, you know, third year, you're getting ready to apply to medical school and take your MCAT. And so I'm starting to do all of this planning. And she sits me down and she says, you know, I really don't think you're medicine quality. Um, she says, your grades aren't good enough. You're a single mom and you're coming from Cal State LA. The likelihood that you will be accepted into medical school is pretty low. Do you have any backup plans for when you don't get in? She did not say if you don't get in. She says when you don't get in. And I left that meeting in tears because despite getting pregnant and everything, no one ever told me you can't do this. My family was like, no, you can still do this. I, you know, for, of course, for a few moments when I first got pregnant, I had those thoughts to myself. You know, the self-doubt was there, but I had never had anyone whom I held with some esteem and turning to them for some guidance and mentoring, tell me, you're not good enough. You're not going to cut it. For a while, I felt a little broken after that. Like, am I, am I really not good enough? Am I really, you know, am, am I, did I waste all this time and effort, time away from my son, you know, all this time and energy that my family contributed to, to, to where I'm not going to be successful? Am I going to let everybody down? And interestingly enough, Another parallel kind of occurring process is I met my now husband at that time and we were in school together Um, and we used to compete and we used to study together um, and we were just friends at the time. And I remember him telling me, he was like, is she a doctor? And I said, no. And he's like, then why are you listening to her? He was like, if she had walked those steps and she herself had gone through it herself, he was like, then I might hold her response with a little bit more credence. He was like, but if it's your dreams and it's what you want, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You know, of course, and then he was the first of many to reflect that same sentiment to me. Um, and I was, this is kind of around the time that I had some very key people who were in my church step in to really help me. One of them was a PhD chemist that worked for Loma Linda, who was in my church. And he I respected him very much. And he was working with me on doing some research with him um, and helping me with my application. So he was just like, don't listen to her. He's like, sure, there are certain things that we can do to improve your application. He's like, you need to do some research. And he was like, I'll help you with that. He's like, we'll sit down with all of your extracurriculars. And so I had other people take me under their wing at that point after this whole significant kind of letdown and it really, they really helped build me up. And so I had, because I, of how my, my undergrad was, I, I was already done with my biochemistry bachelor's degree, but I was planning on doing an, a minor in microbiology. But, you know, after talking with him, the discussion, the decision that I made was to go ahead and just graduate out um, after the, I want to say it was the winter quarter. So it was like March. I just went ahead and just kind of submitted for graduation. And then I went to go do research with him. So I worked as a research assistant for a year under his wing. I got mentorship and 
I was accepted to medical school. So it wasn't, that was the biggest moment of self-doubt of where I really felt that I wasn't going to make it. That's just so sad because that's like a pivotal point is when you're in college, you're getting ready to apply and you know how one person can do that to you. Uh, I, this just reminded me, I recently, um, one of my cousin's son, um, they live out of state and they reached out and he had the very similar experience. He wanted to be a doctor and a non-doctor <laughs> told him the same thing that, you know, maybe you should consider. Cause I don't know if you're, you're, you know, you'll, you'll be qualified and he changed his mind and, you know, Aww. luckily his father reached out to me and, and I said, why are you listening to him? He doesn't even know what it's like to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, it's so sad, which is why we do this, this podcast, because people need to hear what we heard, what we were told. And sometimes you have to ignore that background noise that's going to get in the way. That's exactly right. Do you think your background influenced like you becoming a psychiatrist and actually choosing that over pediatrics? Yes. And what's interesting, as I was walking on that path, like with each step, I don't think that I recognized how my path and why my path changed. I did recognize that my professional interests were steering in a different direction um, and that I really enjoyed psychiatry when I did my rotations. Um, Initially, I thought I was going to be a child psychiatrist because, of course, I love kids. But when I started doing child psychiatry, I found that what was oftentimes leading the child to have difficulties coping was that their adult, their parents, the adults around them were hurting and had suffered. And so then I ended up doing consult work my second year in residency and fell in love with it. So yes, the answer is yes. Um, as I walked in, I seen my, my, my interest change I had another moment in my fourth year of medical school that actually pushed me away from pediatrics. And this was with a physician, unfortunately. I had this point been holding holding, um, that I was going to stay with pediatrics. I still love pediatrics to this day. And I still strongly feel that if I had been a pediatrician like yourself, I would have loved my job every day. But I was doing my peds sub-internship beginning of my fourth year. And the way that Home Linda structured our uh, sub-internship was we had our team that we were assigned to during the week, and then we had to do a certain number of calls, and they did a day and a night float system. So then I would just kind of be plugged in with that day or night float person, depending on what day I was on call. And one of the, the weekend, well, I got a weekend call day, and it wasn't with your team, but trying to be the good medical student, I notified my team, my senior and my attending that. I was going to change my call day, but it still wouldn't interfere with me being here on my Monday through Friday, you know, just taking the initiative to communicate. I didn't give any necessary reasons behind it, um, but I just said, I just want to keep you guys in the loop. I'm going to be here on this day and I'll be admitting for our team. And then the attending after rounds asked, can I talk with you? And I was like, sure, you know, and she sat me down and she told me, I'm not going to let you change your call day. And I was kind of befuddled, to be honest, because the calls don't go through her. Again, this is a night float, day float system. So it's not organized through the attending or anything like that. Um, She's like, I will, I intend to email the clerkship director to not allow you to change because 
this is a, a very important lesson for you to learn. As a physician, you are going to miss things. And this is just your first chance to experience it. In real life, you don't get to change your call days. And so she didn't let me change my call day. Um, and the reason for me changing my call day was because my son had opening day for his first, you know, for his one of his sports that he was playing um, and no one could be there. And I was his only parent. And I told her that I said, well, I'm a single mom. It's my son's opening day. My son won't have anybody there to watch him if I'm not there. She just looked at me like she stared at me, did not say anything. And so I was like, you know what? If she's that unhappy in pediatrics, maybe that's not the field for me. And what it caused me to reflect on was how happy the psychiatrists were. Um, The work-life balance was definitely different on psychiatry. And I had a similar instance, not exact, when I was on my psychiatric rotation. And they were just so flexible. And they're like, well, yeah, sure. The main thing is that you get your call experience and you know what that's like. And they focus on the learning component of it versus sharing their burnout with someone who was just up and coming. I don't know why she she chose to do that to me, but I did miss my son's opening day. And I, I, at that point, I pulled my heiress application for pediatrics and submitted it for psychiatry. Um, so that, in the, in the, if you look at it, that's probably the clear point where I turned away from peds to psychiatry. But later on, when I've had many years with being a psychiatrist and understanding how life experiences, family upbringing, childhood adverse events all factor into who you are and what you want to get out of your job and your, your profession. Um, I think a lot of it growing up, I seen many of my loved ones who had gone without, who had been abused, who struggled with substance use, how it impacted them every day of their lives. And probably the biggest, most influential of those would obviously be my father. It's going to just blow your mind how much this makes sense now and after fact. So my father, an alcoholic, struggled with trauma and abuse as a child, likely had post-traumatic stress disorder that he self-medicated with alcohol um, and was depressed towards the end of my life. Of course, at the time, I didn't know what to call it. I just knew the observations that I had in front of me of his behavior how protective he was of me to not be around certain people um, and certain types of people because they hurt him. And then he got really sick towards the end of my life. He had congestive heart failure and he ended up dying when I was 20 because of that. And, you know, when he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure because of the alcoholism, because of the PTSD, because of the depression, he didn't follow up. He didn't take good care of himself. He neglected his medical issues. And because of them, they went unaddressed and not appropriately treated for years. And it led to his early demise. One of the stats that I cite to many, many of my patients is that people who have a psychiatric disorder die on average 15 to 20 years before the general population. That was my father. And so I felt it to be somewhat of a mission to care for those that have medical illnesses, but also have other psychiatric disorders. And so, whereas I was trying to decide between, you know, pediatrics or psychiatry, the hardest piece was that I, I myself 
fell into the stereotype that a psychiatrist is just sitting in an office all day, you know, with the tweed coat and the elbow patches telling me, tell me about your mother. Even though my experience logically in medical school had been very, very different, you know, but I didn't want to just see myself in an office so far away from medicine. And when I did my second year and I fell in love with consult work, I was in the hospital. I was still interfacing with other medical specialties. So it it allowed me to have both pieces of fulfillment to where I'm actively involved with patients who are still acutely medically ill, but I still get to approach them from the psychiatric standpoint, meaning that I get to spend all that time with them. I get to sit down. I get to talk with them. I get to support them. I get to do some therapy, psychoeducation about what they're going through and how it can negatively affect their medical management and how it's important for them to, you know, stay on top of these things and not let their mental health, you know, be a detriment to their medical health and their physical health. So that's kind of how I ended up where I am now. Um, And this epiphany kind of came to me probably just a few years ago. And it's like, wow. So I really positioned myself as a psychiatrist who could have been called to see my father and maybe could have made a significant impact in his morbidity and how long, you know, before he passed away. So I I kind of have made that a personal and professional mission of mine is to help individuals who have medical illness and, and to try to help them not be bogged down by their psychiatric illness or their symptoms. I think that's why it's so important within the primary care setting to have psychiatrists and therapists on site mm-hmm. because part of the, especially for when you work, I feel like, you know, for the underserved who are used to neglecting their health mm-hmm. or culturally the lack of trust, right? There's a lot of things Correct. when you have it there within your primary care setting. It makes such a big difference because you are treating the underlying psychiatric issues, which then has a positive domino effect to help their medical health too. Very good perspective. And, you know, as you're talking about your experience in medical school, I wonder if this attending targeted you or if it's just an attending that this is who she is. Just because I had an attending uh, in a different, not in, in pediatrics, but I was very targeted without reason, gave me a terrible evaluation, which made no sense because I didn't even do anything to this person. Luckily, like when they were reviewing all of my stuff before I applied, they took that out because it just didn't make sense. It was like out of whack compared to every other evaluation I had. But fast forward 20 years later, I got in touch with a former medical student and apparently he now works with other students. This attending was targeting a lot of minority students. Oh, wow. You know, just I think it's something also to just think about as a background for, you know, our future doctors who are listening to this, that you might have this. And when those people come along your path, you have to disregard and really not really think that that person represents the field or represents your potential or your future life or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. because it, it still does exist. It still does. And I mean, that is what I have shared with other medical students that I've talked to especially those that are minority. Because as I'm sure you experienced in your medical training, there's a lot of microaggressions towards students who are minorities. There are many times I was the only minority in the room. And even now, as a physician, as a physician executive, you know, because I have 
done well at Hogue. Um, I am the chair of the neurology and psychiatry department. I'm the director of the consult service there. There are times I am the only woman in the room. And there are times that I'm the only minority in the room as well. So when I've mentored other minority students, there are going to be many, many instances where you will be the only representative of either your gender or your ethnicity, and that it is your chance to shine. Give, take that as an opportunity to show them that their stereotypes are wrong. And that is kind of how I've conducted myself since that last encounter with the pediatric attending my fourth year of medical school. And I've been fortunate enough to not have any more of those negative experiences. I mean, I feel like USC was a very, very supportive for minority students or minority residents. Um, so I consider myself very lucky to have gone to that program. There are other minorities there, obviously not to the same percentage as other ethnicities, but um, I wasn't the only one. Within my residency class, there was one other Hispanic male. And actually, our third year, another Hispanic female joined um, when the Cedars psych program closed down. So I was very fortunate. There were two other Hispanic minorities just within my residency class. And my class itself was very, very diverse. We had those of Middle Eastern descent, Caucasian, um, Hispanic, Japanese, you know, so I was very fortunate with the class that I was put in with that I didn't have any of those experiences during residency. Definitely, you know, you can interact with other physicians that you can tell don't hold you with the same esteem and maybe are a bit dismissive of your opinions. And I definitely feel where that's coming from based off of their, how they're interacting with me, how they're talking with me. And I, honestly, it makes me feel sad for them because they're missing out on the ability to collaborate with so many individuals that have so much to contribute and to add to their patient's care. But I feel that at the end of the day, they're the ones who are missing out. And that's the perspective that I've had and I've, I've developed over many, many years now being a practicing psychiatrist. And being a psychiatrist overall, I can you know, very much kind of sit back and let people's biases influence how they in interact with me. And I just kind of watch. And knowledge and understanding of people's behavior um, and how their biases, they don't even recognize they're in play, has really helped me not get so reactive or personalize how they are because I recognize that it could be any, you know, young Hispanic female that's in front of them and they would act the same way. So it's nothing about me and who I am. I could be another, you know, a male African American. And I could still be treated the same way. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> All right. Before, before we close out, is there any piece or like one thing or a piece of advice that you just want to give to younger people that are pursuing a career in medicine? Yeah. I mean, what I always have encouraged myself and my son and the, because I have mentored a few other individuals who have gone on to medicine is let your heart and your passion be your guide. If you love what you do, you will do it well inherently. If your heart and your mind and your interests are telling you that medicine is your destiny, don't let anybody tell you otherwise because only you know how you feel 
Only you know what you get fulfillment out of and what you're willing to sacrifice and how determined you're willing to be to achieve that goal. To where if you want it, no, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Thank you for saying that. And just remember, everyone, here is someone who was told that she was not, she did not have what it takes to be a doctor. And now she is chair of a department of a big hospital. (laughs) You know, it's just, I mean, just really those people that come along your path, you just need to disregard, just disregard it. And like Dr. Garcia said, you need to really just, if you really have that passion, it'll take you there. You'll get there Mm -hmm. with the passion. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining. Um, And as always, we look forward to seeing you next time. Peace and love. Bye everyone.